Before I entered college, I scarcely gave any thought to cancer and terminal illness in general. Um, then I went away to school at Wheaton, and uh, two of my very close acquaintances died before they were 22, one of leukemia and one of cancer of the lymph glands. Then I went to Fuller Seminary and within one year watched my systematics professor, Jim Morgan, shrivel up and die of cancer of the intestines. He was 36. Then I went to Germany to study for three years, and six months before I was finished, my mentor, Professor Goppelt, dropped dead on the way to the subway of a massive coronary. And then I came to Bethel and taught for six years and watched administration and students and faculty die of cancer. Support, Paul Greeley, Bob Bergerud, Luth, Ruth Ludeman, Graydon Held, Chet Lindsay, Mary Ellen Carlson, all Christians, all dead before their three score and ten were up. And now I've come to Bethlehem and Harvey Ring is gone and you could multiply the list tenfold. What shall we say to these things? Something must be said because sickness and death is a threat to faith in the love and the power of God. And I regard it as my number one pastoral responsibility to nourish faith in the love and the power of God. And so, I want us to listen carefully to the Word today. There's no weapon like the Word for wording, warding off threats to faith in the love and the power of God. I regard this message today as a crucial pastoral message, which is why it's going to last almost 40 minutes. And I'll understand those have to catch buses and save your roasts if you take off at 12. But I can't shorten it. It's crucial because if you thought that your pastor had the idea that every sickness is a punishment for some particular sin, or if you thought that your pastor thought that the failure to be healed in a few days after praying was a sign of inauthentic faith, or if you thought that I thought that Satan really is the ruler of this age and God can only wring his hands in heaven while Satan wreaks havoc with his children down below, you'd relate to me very differently in sickness than if you knew what I really thought. And so I want to tell you what I really think this morning about Christ and cancer. And I hope that I can show that it is not merely my thought, but God's thought. And if it's not, you should ignore it and seek for better counsel. The text is Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 28, and I'd like everybody who has a Bible to look at it because we want to observe some things here very closely. 
I have six affirmations that sum up my theology of sickness. And I think they all are here in Romans 8, 18 to 28. At least the seed of them is here. Where it's only a seed, I'll choose some texts elsewhere in Scripture to bring the flower forth. I think to save time, I will not read it again since it was just read, but simply point to the particular places where I draw my affirmations. Affirmation number one. The age in which we live, which extends from the fall of man into sin to the second coming of Christ, is an age in which all creation, including our bodies, is enslaved to corruption and subjected to futility. Verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. And verse 21 The creation will be freed from slavery to corruption. And the reason I think our bodies are included there is because of verse 23. Not only the wider creation, but we ourselves, that is, we Christians, groan in ourselves, awaiting sonship, that is, the redemption of our body. Redemption from what? Subjection to futility and slavery to corruption. Our bodies are part of creation and they participate in the futility and the corruption to which all creation has been subjected. Who is it in verse 20 that has subjected creation to futility? It's God. The candidates for that position might be God, Satan, or man. Paul might have meant Satan in luring man into sin, on which then God pronounced the curse, is the one who subjected all creation to futility. Or he might have meant man in disobeying God at the very beginning is the one who subjected all creation to futility. But it won't work. And the reason neither of those is correct is because of that little phrase in hope at the end of verse 20. The creation has been subjected in hope. Now, what that little phrase gives is the design and the intention of whoever it was that subjected the creation to futility. But we know that Satan and man in their sin certainly had no intention of subjecting creation to futility in order that hope for redemption might be kindled in the human heart and so that one day freedom for the sons of God might emerge in the age to come. Only one person could subject the creation to futility and enslave it to bondage in hope. And that's the loving and the just creator. Therefore, I conclude that the whole world stands under the judicial sentence of God upon rebellious and sinful mankind. A sentence that is so universal that it embraces even Christians and even their bodies. No one is excluded. And probably Paul means both spiritual and physical corruption and futility here. And the reason I think it's both, we'll see later on. But he means on the spiritual side that men make 
foolish decisions. They have flawed perception. They have misconceived goals. All that intellectual and sinful, futile misdirection of mankind. But on the other hand, there are flood, famine, volcanoes, earthquakes, tidal waves, plagues, snake bites, car accidents, plane crashes, asthma, allergies, the common cold, and cancer that wreaks havoc in the world, causing pain and bringing men, all men, to the dust. And as long as we are in the body, we are slaves to corruption. Paul said the same thing, didn't he? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, where he says, We do not lose heart, even though our outer man, that's the body, is, and then he uses this word, which some translate, decaying, or some being corrupted. It's the same word, or a related word, to the one in Romans 8. Our outer man is decaying while our inner man is being renewed from day to day. The word Paul uses here for this decaying is the same one used in Luke 12, 33, where Jesus says, uh, put your treasure in heaven where no moth or no thief comes in to steal and no moth comes in to corrupt. So, the idea is, just like an old, moist coat hanging in a dark closet is going to be moth-eaten, so our bodies in this age are doomed to corruption if Christ does not come back before. All creation has been subjected to futility and enslaved to corruption, and that's my first F affirmation. Second, there is an age coming in which all God's children who endure to the end in faith will be freed from slavery to corruption and all pain and all crying and all sickness will be done away. And I get chills running up and down my back when I think about that age. Verse 21, the hope in which God has subjected creation was that someday the creation itself also will be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 23 again. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. But not yet. Not yet. Our citizenship is in heaven, Paul said in Philippians, from which we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies into a body like His glory. And he said in Corinthians, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And he said... In Revelation, or John did, I will wipe away every tear from our eyes, from your eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the former things of this age are gone. There is coming a day when every crutch will be carved and every wheelchair melted down into medallions of redemption. And Merlin and Reuben 
and Jim and Hazel and Ruth and all the others are going to do cartwheels through the kingdom of heaven. And we will rejoice. But not yet. It may not be yet. The day is coming. And that's my second affirmation. Third. Jesus Christ came into the world to die to purchase that redemption, demonstrate its character as both spiritual and physical, and to give us a foretaste of it. Now listen very carefully here, because right here is where I think many healers in our day misunderstand God's purposes and distort his intention. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 53, verses 5 through 6, a text which Peter, in chapter 2 of his epistle, verse 24, picks up and applies to Christians. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. The blessing of forgiveness and the blessing of healing were purchased in the death of Christ. And everyone who joins to Christ and lives for Christ will have both blessings. But when? When? That's the question of our day. When do those blessings come in full force? When will our bodies no longer be enslaved to corruption? The ministry of Jesus, as we read it in the Gospels, was a ministry of healing and a ministry of forgiveness. He said, for example, to those disciples of John the Baptist who were very perplexed, he said, you go tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Offense? Why would anybody take offense? He raises the dead. He's bringing the kingdom, the long-awaited kingdom. Why would anybody take offense at someone who can do that? Easy. He raised three people and left thousands in the tombs. Why? Why did he only raise three if he came to raise the dead? Maybe because the relatives of all the others didn't have enough faith. Baloney. In Luke chapter 7, he raised the widow's son. She didn't know him from Adam. She didn't know who Jesus was. She hadn't even seen him. All the text says was he felt compassion on her as they were carrying the boy out of the town in his casket. Well, didn't he pity all the widows in Israel? Sure he did. The answer to why Jesus only raised a few people and not everybody is that contrary to Jewish expectation, the first coming of the Messiah 
was not the consummation of redemption, nor the closing of this fallen age. The first coming of the Messiah was to purchase that redemption and to illustrate the nature of that redemption as physical and spiritual and to give us a foretaste of it. He is going to come again. And now we know from his illustrations that when he comes, there will be resurrection for all his people and there will be healing for all his people. No more crying, no more pain at that day. But let me stress here, lest there be a misunderstanding. We do have a foretaste. We do have a foretaste of that redemption. The benefits of forgiveness and the healing are real. God can and does heal the sick now in answer to our prayers. And nothing I say should be construed to imply that he doesn't. But he doesn't always, does he? The miracle mongers of our day who guarantee that Jesus wants you well now are guilty of a gross distortion of God's intention. And I think it's this. They have failed to understand the nature of God's purpose in this fallen age. They have minimized the depth of sin and the cruciality of the purgative nature of suffering and the value of faith that comes through suffering. And they're guilty of trying to force into this age what God has reserved for the age to come. Notice the flow of thought in Romans 8, verses 23 and 24. We ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan in ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we have been saved. Because of Christ's purchase redemption, we already have the Spirit. But it's only a, a first fruit. It's only a down payment. It's only a foretaste of redemption. And you can't help but see that when Paul stresses this we, ourselves, even we, grown in ourselves, that what he's doing by stressing even we is by warning the, the Romans and warning us against a false inference. The false inference would be, I have the Holy Spirit, Almighty God, reigning in my life. How then shall I remain subject to the bondage of this age? And Paul's against that inference. He's against it. You can see it in the word we, even we, ourselves, grown in ourselves, Waiting, waiting, waiting the redemption of our bodies. He's against those who want to bring into this age too much salvation. The salvation is not finished. It's only begun. And that's true morally. Galatians 5, 5 says, We, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting, waiting, for the hope of righteousness. Paul knows there's a lot of righteousness yet to be had, doesn't he? And we know it. And here in this text, we wait also for the redemption of our bodies. And we groan, waiting. 
Christ has purchased redemption. He has demonstrated and illustrated that it is both physical and both spiritual. And he has given us a glorious foretaste of it. That's my third affirmation. Now, fourth. God controls who gets sick and who gets well. And all his decisions are for the good of his children. It was God who subjected creation to futility, and it is God who will liberate it at the end, and it is God who at every step of the way liberates any given individual from corruption. Listen to this amazing, powerful text from Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. When Pharaoh, when Moses refused to go down and talk to Pharaoh, God got angry, and he said to Moses, Moses, who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Behind all sickness is the sovereign hand of God, dispensing things according to his sovereign good pleasure. Deuteronomy 32, 39. God says, see now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death. And I give life, I have wounded, and I will heal, and no one can deliver from my hand. But what about Satan? Isn't Satan the arch enemy of our health? Isn't it Satan who destroys the wholeness of man spiritually and physically? Wasn't it Satan who tormented Job with all those sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot? Where's Satan fit in? Yes, it was Satan. And the writer to the book of Job, though, has a very interesting perspective on Satan. Read the first two chapters of Job carefully. I've been meditating a lot on Job for the past months. The writer to the book of Job thinks that it is not wrong to attribute to God the causality of what Satan is doing in making Job sick. I'll show you this from the text. You don't need to look it up. You can just mark the verses if you want to follow it later. Job 2, verse 7, we read this. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job's wife looks on and says, curse God and die. Don't maintain your integrity anymore. There's no point in it. And Job's response to his wife is this. You're one of the foolish women. Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? Now, we might think Job doesn't understand Job does not know it was Satan. But listen to the comment in the next verse, verse 10, of the writer who's inspired. He says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, it is no sin. It is no sin to recognize the hand of the sovereign God behind a disease, the causality of which 
may more immediately lie in the hands of Satan. God stands behind all Satan's activities. Satan may be sly, but he is stupid in some ways. He fails to see that every effort he makes through suffering to ruin the faith of God's precious children is simply going to be taken by God and turned into a wonderful, purifying, strengthening test of faith through which God will bring His children shining like silver. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. The writer to Hebrews says, nor faint when you are reproved. For those whom the Lord loves he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not joyful, but painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 12 Verses 5 through 10. All the afflictions of the godly are intended by God to increase our godliness, our holiness, our faith, by making us rely more on the God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1 9. If we get angry at God, which we all are tempted to do from time to time, if we get angry at God in our sickness, we are rejecting His love. For He only disciplines us in love. He only has our best interests at heart. He wants us to learn some rich lesson of faith. And then we'll say with the psalmist, this beautiful statement of faith in Psalm 119, 71 and 75, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn thy statutes. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. That's my fourth affirmation. God controls who gets sick and who gets well and all his decisions are for the good of his children even if the pain lasts long and is hard. For doesn't the last verse of our text say God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him? Number five. Therefore, we should pray for God's help both to heal and to strengthen faith while he has not healed. Let us pray for healing. It is fitting that a child cry out to his heavenly father for help when he's in need. And it is fitting that a heavenly father only give a child what's best for him. But healing is not always what's best for us, apparently. But if it's sometimes best for us not to be healed, how shall we know then what to pray? How shall we know when to stop praying for healing and when to pray only for grace?
to endure. Paul faced that problem square in the face. In 2 Corinthians 12, you remember? A messenger of Satan given to me, a thorn in the flesh, that I might not be too elated over all the revelations God has given to me. What does he do? He prays, God, take it away. Take it away. Take it away. And what does God do? No. 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 But my grace is sufficient for you. Why? Because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will glory all the more in my weaknesses. In our text here, in verses 26 and 7, Paul addresses the same problem in a more theoretical way. Look at verses 26 and 27. While we're waiting for the redemption of our bodies, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts, that is God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Sometimes all we can do is cry out for help and we don't know in what form the help should come. But the Spirit of God in those times for God's humble and broken children comes down and takes that expression of need which is fumbling and groping and helpless and does not know what form to put the expression in. And He transforms it into an expression that accords with the good and gracious intentions of God, holds it up before the throne, and God always responds for the good of those who pray that way. So let's not be proud and stand aloof and try to endure stoically what fate has brought. Not that way. Not that way. Let's be little children who, when we feel hurt, flee to our Heavenly Father to ask for help in time of need. And that leads to proposition number six. Let us always, always trust in the love and the power of God, even in the darkest hour of suffering. The thing that distresses me most about those who say today that Christians should always be miraculously healed in this age is that they give the impression that the quality of faith in your life is to be mainly measured and sometimes only measured by whether or not it can lay hold of God for a miracle. And if you can't, then your faith is at least weak, if not inauthentic. But when I read the New Testament, large portions of it give the impression that the measure of the quality of faith is, by, is whether or not we can maintain joy and confidence and peace in God through suffering. The great chapter on faith in the Bible is Hebrews 11, which begins, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the conviction of things not seen. Now, what's usually overlooked in this chapter is the last eight verses. In these last eight verses of Hebrews chapter 11, we get a balanced picture, not picture, not an imbalanced one. On the one hand, faith is celebrated as that which enables a person to do miracles, to escape suffering. But in the last several verses, faith is glorified as that which enables a person to go through suffering. I'm going to read these two halves for you. Now listen. Verse 33 of Hebrews 11. By faith, they conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness, they were made strong became mighty in war, put armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Why, faith is the victory. You always win when you have faith, right? Wrong. The next verse. By faith, others were tortured, not accepting release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom this world is not worthy, wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these gained approval through their faith. The glory of God is manifested both in the power to heal and in the power to give grace, peace, faith, and a sweet spirit when he does not heal. And that too is a miracle. It moves me very deeply when I see the saints bearing that load in faith. Oh, I want us to be a people like that here at Bethlehem, if we are a humble, childlike people who cry out to God in our need and trust his promises, the Holy Spirit will help us and God will pour out on this church every possible blessing. But after today, you will know that he has not stopped doing that when you get sick. He will work everything together for our good. That's my theology of suffering. And I'll review it for you. Affirmation number one. In this age, all creation, including our bodies, has been subject to futility and enslaved to corruption. Second, there is an age coming when all God's children who have endured to the end in faith will be liberated from slavery to corruption and experience the freedom from all pain and all sickness. Third, Jesus Christ came into this world to purchase that redemption, to illustrate for us that it will be both spiritual and physical and to give us a foretaste of it. Fourth, God controls who gets sick and who gets well, and he always controls it for your Good. Fifth, therefore we should pray. 
like little children and ask for God's help to heal and to strengthen until he heals. And finally, we should always trust in the power and the love of God, even when the pain drags on and on and on, for he only afflicts us for our good. Oh, that we might be an assembly of saints who have the faith that Johnny Erickson expressed after her long bout with paralysis and depression. She wrote in the last page of her book this, and I wish we all could say it. The girl who became emotionally distraught and wavered at each new set of circumstances is now grown up. A woman who has learned to rely on God's sovereignty. Shall we bow for a moment of silent prayer and ask God to increase our faith in this way? God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, restore, establish, and strengthen you. Amen.